This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to Coffee House Shots, a Spectator's daily political podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Fraser Nelson. So the government is fighting on two fronts today. First, when it comes to the aftermath of the protocol bill, which they announced yesterday afternoon. And secondly, when it comes to the Rwanda policy with the first flight due to take off this evening. James, when it comes to the Rwanda policy first... There is a suggestion today from the Foreign Secretary during the morning round that the plane will leave today to go to Rwanda. But do we have any sense of how many people might be on it? I think it'll be a single digit number of people. I think at the time of recording this, there are seven people currently on the on the flight. I suspect there will be more legal challenges, whether any of them succeed or not remains to be seen. I mean, what the courts are doing is the courts are saying we're not prepared to stop the flights per se, but obviously each individual on the flight can appeal whether they they should be on it or not. I think in some ways, the government is embracing this row. I think the bigger challenge for the government actually comes if the courts declare it to be legal and the, the policy is actually tested against whether it works, full stop. Because at the moment, the government will just rail against, you know, everyone they say is is trying to block the policy from happening and you know they will say look we're trying to fix the problem we can't fix the problem because you know so you must you know give us a majority so we can change the law and take on the house of lords and all these kind of arguments i think there is a real question about how practicable the policy is and how effective it will be as a deterrent but but we haven't seen that yet fraser we could list all the figures who have criticised this policy, but we'd probably pass the 10-minute limit this podcast is supposed to stick to. So instead, let's focus on the latest group to join the list. 25 bishops who sit in the Lords have signed a letter in today's Times calling it an immoral policy that shapes Britain. What do you make of that? Uh, well, I'm all in favour of bishops getting involved in public debates here, but I'd be... I mean, the, the problem is they always get involved on in such a facile level. You've got the you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Archbishop of York and others who are saying this is an immoral policy that shames Britain. But the moral dilemma of this is actually quite a subtle one. Right now, for, for example, they don't really... I'd like to know what they think about Britain's policy of uh, taking in 100,000 um, refugees from the Hong Kong Chinese... That's something to be commended, in my view. Britain's records for absorbing immigration is one of the best in the whole world. One in five workers is a migrant and makes Britain one of the most successful melting pots in Europe. Now, the dilemma here is quite simple, that if you have a system that people traffickers are allowed to take people across the English Channel and that seems to be a successful business model, these people traffickers will have substandard vehicles and people will die during the journey. We saw thousands upon thousands of migrants die in the Mediterranean because the smugglers were not addressed. The British government is saying that lives could be saved if this illegal route is closed down and that their moral position is is quite simple. That first of all, that Britain does take in lots of refugees, lots of asylum seekers, we're taking in lots of Ukrainians, not quite enough for my liking, but we're doing quite enough on this. But when it comes to illegal um, immigration um, handled by people smuggling gangs, that is something that the British government simply has to stop in order to save lives. And if telling these people that they're going to end up in a plane to Rwanda is a deterrent, 
then it's an exercise which is morally worthwhile if it leads to fewer people dying. Now, I'd like to hear from the bishops what they think about that particular problem. I'd like to see how many of them wrote a letter slagging off people trafficking in general. To me, it's one of the new giant evils of our time. This is, in the last 20 years, it's emerged as something which is incredible, which kills thousands of the world's most desperate people, and it needs a moral response. It seems to me as if the bishops only really get involved when there is a, a very easy, quite cheap shot, and it doesn't really. I mean, the, the, the broadcast bulletins love to say the bishops are slacking off the Tories for being evil. But there is a moral dilemma here, and one I would like to hear these very clever, intelligent and thoughtful bishops get more closely involved in. Now, James, in number 10, this policy is viewed as an ideal wedge issue, but that would mean that it would have to divide the opposition. So do you think this policy does cause a problem for Labour in any way? I don't think it causes a problem for Labour with its current voter base. Where I think it might cause them a problem is in some of those seats that they lost to the Tories in 2019, where voters, for, for a variety of reasons, you know, favour a, a tough line on price immigration, you know, either because they worry about immigration numbers or because they are in favour of more immigration from, uh, and they don't like people jump, you know, they don't like the sense that if, 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 if people turn up on the Channel Coast, you know, that gives them precedence over, over others. And so, so I think that is where things get tricky. I think that the challenge for the government is how effective is it as a deterrent? How much does it end up costing? And also, you know, one crucial difference, I think, with uh, the Australian offshore processing policy was Australia was processing people offshore. They never arrived in Australia at any point. They, they were, you know, their boats were picked up and they were, they were dragged to one of these islands en route to Australia. So while as here, they are making it to the UK, hence all these legal challenges that we are seeing to them being removed. And Fraser, the other news uh, relates to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, we discussed the bill that the ministers presented yesterday on last night's podcast. But in terms of the reaction so far, uh, we don't yet know what exactly the Brexit is. Um, the members of the European Research Group think of it. They have ultimately said they're going to reconvene the Star Chamber. But there hasn't been any, uh, I, I suppose, it hasn't been a dramatic rejection yet. But when it comes to the EU, there is talk of a potential legal action and actually a sense that this could end up, uh, hints that it could end up in the entire UK Brexit trade deal, um, you know, uh, no longer ceasing to be. Yeah, yeah, the stakes are, are pretty high here. But I think that, you know, Boris Johnson's on sticky weeks and quite a lot of things right now, but his party will back him over this. Um, because the problem simply, and this, by the way, is a very good issue for him, because he can say, like, if Jeremy Hunt was leader, do you think Jeremy Hunt would be playing hardball with the protocol? Absolutely not. And there's a whole line of people who you think would not be as defiant as Boris Johnson is over saying, look, this protocol clearly isn't working. There's not a single unionist in a devolved assembly who supports it. There's no democratic consent amongst the unionists. And the Good Friday Agreement means you need to have the consent of both Republicans and nationalists. So I think he's on quite firm ground here, but the EU is bound to raise it to the highest stakes, saying, look, we'll take away your whole Brexit deal, and you wouldn't want something like that to happen, would you? So this whole battle, I think, for as long as it goes on, this will suit Boris Johnson. I also think he's probably right in his analysis. Um, I've been really quite alarmed by the return of marches in Northern Ireland. We are now seeing men with balaclavas come back in a way which is reminiscent of the bad old days. 
And I think if you allow one community to think it is being shafted at the expense of the other, then you will see the conditions that led to the troubles in the first place. And anybody who, I think, um, cares about the integrity of the UK or peace in Northern Ireland ought to be deeply alarmed at what we've seen over the last few weeks and months. Now, James, the official line from the European Union is this is no way to negotiate. Unilateral action will lead to nothing and everyone should get back around the negotiating table instead and the UK government should drop these plans. But are we picking up any signs that actually this could lead to some concessions down the line? Well... I think the EU is not inclined to offer concessions to, to Boris Johnson at the moment. I mean, they look at him and they, they 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 now are beginning to think of him, rightly or wrongly, in the same way they thought about Theresa May, which is, you know, why give these concessions to him when there could be a new prime minister in a year's time and it would be better to offer them to, to, to the new person in charge. And that obviously comes on top of the fact that there is, I think, a kind of anger in EU circles that, you know, that Boris Johnson signed the protocol and is now seeking these changes to it. I actually think the whole row of the protocol reflects very badly on both the UK and the EU, in that there are clearly some kind of commonsensical ways of trying to deal with some of the problems, right? You know, some kind of, you know, clearly any solution that is going to be acceptable to both sides is going to have to involve some kind of kind of red or green lane plan so that you know goods that are going to stay in northern ireland don't have to be subject to all the checks that goods that might move into the republic and therefore into the single market are going to be and i mean the uk and the eu you know, they have to think whether they want to become the european version of japan and south korea who just two democratic countries that fall out at the drop of a hat or whether they wish to have a more constructive relationship than that and i would argue that if you look at what is happening in ukraine you know that is a clear case for why they need to have a more constructive relationship given the, the security of the continent and also given the fact that you know you cannot be certain that you will always have a u.s president who is as atlanticist as joe biden is you know it is entirely possible that you get either a kind of full-on kind of Trump-style America first or back in the uh, Oval Office, or you get a US president who says, look, we're not going to leave NATO, but our overwhelming priority is uh, the Indo-Pacific and the contest with China there. Thank you, James. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the next 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll send you a copy of Associate Editor Douglas Murray's new book, The War on the West, worth £20, absolutely free. Join the party today at spectator.co.uk forward slash Murray.